Hey, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for tuning in to the Big Honker Podcast. Was that loud, Jeff? Blowed my fucking ear, wax out of my ears. Whew. Happy days are here again. Dive Bomb Industries has given you a brand new promo code for being a good listener of the Big Honker Podcast. And what would that promo code be? Trump 2020. Common theme here, ladies and gentlemen, with the promo codes from Dive Bomb. Trump 2020 will save you 10% off of your entire order when you go to Dive Bomb Industries. Season's coming up. You need decoys. They've got decoys. Go to DiveBombIndustries.com. Fill up your shopping cart. Use the promo code TRUMP2020 to save yourself 10% off at checkout. That's 2020. Trump 2020 is in the big chief, our president, and someone I'm glad I support and vote. Was it okay for me to give a little political? Absolutely. New Pentel decoys coming out from Dive Bomb Industries. The contrast is going to be something that Burge will key in on from a long way away. So uh, even if you don't shoot a whole bunch of Pentel decoys, I wouldn't be afraid to buy me a couple dozen of them. Throw them out there with the rest of the decoys. Use that contrast of the, of the Drake Pentel to really stand out in the field. So, you, you stole what I was going to say. Best part of having a Pentel decoy is the white. Standing out, baby. Just run, run them in your goose spread. Just throw them out on the edge of it. Bingo. So, divebombindustries.com. This show is also brought to you by Boss Shot Shells. Changing the game. Direct to consumer, direct to you. You go to them. No middleman. You know the price is already rock bottom, and they're starting to copper plate their BBs. And it only takes one. You don't have to shoot them three times to kill them. One shot and they're dead. Won't make you a better shot, but the ones that you do hit will be dead. Go to BossShotShells.com, get what you need. This show is also brought to you by 737, another direct-to-consumer. Dive Bomb's also direct-to-consumer. There's, there's a trend setting here in the there, business. There's, there's something going on here. 737, Oklahoma boys. Make calls in Oklahoma for people everywhere else. It's with the big guy in Texas. It's what I blow, the, the old number one. The old number one. Go to 737DuckCalls. Look them up on Instagram, 737DuckCalls. They're fun to follow on Instagram. This show is also brought to you by Lucky Duck. Spinners galore. Turkey decoys. Whatever you need. Motion. Varmint call. If you're going to field hunt, you got to run some spinners. The more the merrier. Yeah. Yeah. The more the merrier. If you're, gonna, if you're duck hunting in the field, load them up. Get six, seven, eight spinners, and you will... Wax that ass. So. Run run half the spread and double or triple up on your spinners. You don't need six dozen decoys. If you're going to run some decoys, run three dozen decoys and run five spinners. There you go. LuckyDuck.com, they can hook you up. This show is also brought to you by Athlon Optics. Great glass, crystal clear quality, rock bottom bargain price. Can't say enough about Athlon Optics. They're what I use. They what I use, they're what I use to scout. They also sell scopes, spotting scopes. They got everything that you need to see a long, long way away. Athlonoptics.com. Hook yourself up. We're also brought to you by Sea Light LEDs. Put these bad boys on your trailer. That way you can see what you're doing in the dark. No more fiddling around in the dark. You're not 16 anymore. You don't need to fiddle around in the dark. Turn it on. See what you're doing. Illuminate the sky. Sea Light LEDs. Put out that perfect decoy spread. We're also brought to you by William and Chris Wines. William and Chris Vineyards out of High Texas. Texas wine. Mother's Day's coming up. They You can get them at Central Market, Whole Foods, one of those upscale supermarket. 
You can also go to their website, williamchriswines.com, and they will ship it to you. William Chris Wines, Texas wine at its best. Finally, last but not least, we're brought to you by Stanfield Hunting Outfitters. Taking, we're taking bookings right now. 2019-2020 season. Never too early. If you're looking for a great deal to take some clients or some friends to a family reunion, <clears throat> look at us for a dove hunt. We've got a weekend or two left in October. We've got some weekdays available. Perfect place to get away from the office. Take 10 to 20 of your friends. Come up and hunt Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. What a better way to kill a week than to come up and do a corporate dove hunt. That's stanfieldhunting.com. 940-658-3172. Thanks, guys. Thank you to all of our sponsors. All right, on this episode of the podcast, we're joined by Tony Vandemore. He's the biggest name in waterfowl hunting right now. Sits down with us, takes time out of his day. Interesting guy. We talk a little bit about the water waterfowl uh, land management that they got going on over at Habitat Flats. And uh, he's just an interesting guy. We had a great conversation with him, and we really appreciate him coming on. So anyway, here he is, Tony Vandemore. Three, two, one, boom, and welcome to the Big Honker Podcast. I'm Jeff Stanfield. I'm Andy Shaver. And on the phone with us today, we have Mr. Tony Vandemore of Habitat Flats. How are you doing, Tony? I'm doing great, guys. How are you doing? Wonderful. Wet, 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 cool day in Texas, and in May, that's a good thing. Well, there's been plenty of wet up our way as well, kind of everywhere. It's been a rough, rough stretch of weather the last really six months. Now you're you're getting ready to plan everything right now, aren't you? Or is that putting you behind? Uh, yeah. You know, I've got I've got something in the ground now. Uh, with what we've had the last four days, I'd say I'm going to have to replan it. Uh, you know, for for what we do, we, we tend to get started kind of end of April, first of May. Really, you can kind of get past some of that and do it mid May. But yeah, there's there's a lot of farmers that are that are well behind. In our area so when, when you how you plant you, you plant your crops and, and is that what you do in the off season what, what t- tell us about the day of t- or the the how the summer folds out for tony vandemore because you've got hunting all over the place yeah i mean really the, the summer pumping this time of year i mean everybody thinks you know oh pump season. you get up you get up early every day and go hunting well that's that's like a vacation that's deep. this time of year by far, most hours uh, put in the uh, You know, got to get up, do emails and all that stuff. And flat out, there's something you're doing, whether it's farming, plant crops, getting fields ready, uh, you know, taking care of wet wets are, uh, they're, they're always the, the most work. I mean, there's, there's always something to do. You're in, you're controlling basic species, you're planting more soil foods, you're Seems like you're mowing levees all summer long, and you know you got a lot of spraying to do. It's it's, it's very busy this time of year. 
Now, did you have any back? Did you have any background in uh, in farming or anything, or is this something that you kind of picked up from your years at Habitat Flats? No, I mean I grew up in up in a small farm community in, in northern northwest Illinois. Worked on a farm. All my friends and family had a farm. Uh, <clears throat> I also worked for the state of Illinois at the DNR and, and helped out with refuges. I learned a lot of the management stuff from him. Really, just through trial and error. I made a, made a ton of mistakes trying different things that I thought would work and they didn't. Uh, and on the farming side, one of our partners, Dan Doherty, I mean, he, his family's been farming right there around the refuge you know, since the middle 1800s. Uh, they've got a bunch of ground that, that they farm in fields. And, uh, and he helps us quite a bit. Just kind of picked it up on the fly. You were a pro baseball. You played baseball before you started hunting. Is that that's that's correct? I did. I had a short little short little fit in the minors for a couple of years and figured out that that uh, hitting fastball wasn't going to cut it. Because <laughs> <laughs> they got very good off speed. <laughs> what position did you play? I played right field. So, how did Habitat Flats? How did that all come about? Uh, basically, uh. I had a farm, and two of my partners there and I and Paulie had a farm like a mile away, and uh, we're good friends with Dan Doherty, who his family's been around there forever, and he had he had several options, and you know we we're spending a lot of a lot of time and resources uh, managing managing property, pumping water, and doing that sort of thing. And we looked at we basically started half that flat as a way to kind of offset some of those costs. And uh, I had a Soviet business prior to Habitat Flat, and uh, it all just kind of kind of took off even a lot, a lot quicker than we had anticipated. Now, can you believe that guys are still snow goose hunting on May second? That seems ridiculous. Yeah, that, that, that's crazy. More power to them. They are strong individuals. Oh. They've been doing last two or three months straight. I can't imagine the the last I see the I see uh, stories on Instagram and everything, and I cringe because the last thing that I want to do is be sitting my ass in a layout blind right now. It looks like some of the guys up in Canada are having having a lot better luck than we had with them in the states anyway. Yeah, what was this this past year? Was it as tough as you've ever seen it, snow goose hunting wise? Yeah, it really was. I mean, it was uh, kind of a perfect storm. Uh, granted, you know they had a had a really good hatch, and then all the guys went down. You know, there's a big lack of juvenile birds, but man, the weather was just, it was a of gun. Uh, for us, we like sunshine and wind, and starting the end of January, the middle of March, I bet you could, I bet we didn't have six or seven days of sun and wind. I mean, it was just rain, fall, flood, rain. It's not very good conditions, you know, to killing a snow goose. Yeah, I, I, we don't do a whole lot of snow goose hunting here, but it, it just, I tell you, some of the conditions that I see do not look very, very fun to be out in, especially this this spring. Yeah, it was, it was rough. A lot of fun. It was just a lot more work, uh, you know, like that. You know, that's, that's part of snow goose hunting. I, mean, I don't think there's probably anything with you start out your year in Canada in September, correct? Now, where are you hunting up there? 
Uh, yes, sir. We're uh, we're in Saskatchewan, and it starts September one. Then we've got our you know our early geo season Missouri that starts you know around the ninth of September. So you start out in September in 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 Saskatchewan, and then you go to Missouri. You said we do. You know we've got we've got a a couple different crews. We've got our guys that are running September and October up in Saskatchewan. And then we've got guys here in Missouri that are that are doing the early season teal hunts, and then I mean it takes it takes all a four or five weeks to get ready for regular duck season. Brushing brushing all the blinds, pumping out the pits, getting them brushed, um, harvesting crops. It's uh gets to be a busy time of year. But we open up in Missouri um, the first Saturday in November for our regular duck season. Now, do you go up to Saskatchewan yourself in September? Yeah, I usually try to get up there every year. How long will you stay it's up there fun. for? It just depends. Uh, not near as long now that I've got kids. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, that uh, – it's weird having kids. You know, I've got a four-year-old and uh, – shit, I'm going to lie here – a nine-month-old. And having kids and being a full-time guide, it, it's – it's a tricky balance that you kind of got to strike. It, it definitely is, and you know, part of it you think you think, man, I you know you take all these trips, and yeah, especially this time your turkey season, go turkey hunting in several mm-hmm. different states, and you still want to do it, but but not as much as you don't want to be away from your kids. Yeah, yeah, they're only the, go ahead. Something I'm not going to sacrifice is watching watching my girls grow up. No, uh, my our youngest son just left to go to the army, and I raised Andy and Zach, and now Payne, and they're all out of the house. But I wouldn't take any of the memories back of youth sports, school programs, anything. Your kids are only little one time, and I respect people that do that a whole lot more than the guys that are never there for yeah, their kids. Because the kids are most important thing in your life. So you, you do a lot of teal hunting and stuff. Now, when y'all start hunting in November in the first the first weekend, are y'all shooting greenheads then, or is it mostly gadwalls and stuff? I mean, there's 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 a fair amount of greenheads here. Nothing nothing too drastic. There's lots of pintails, gadwalls, teal. You know, we call summer ducks. Uh, people don't, I guess, people do, but some people don't realize how early those ducks start to migrate. Yeah, and that kind of kind of falls in our, you know, in our big management plan is when we're pumping water for teal uh granted we love to shoot teal and and it provides excellent habitat for that but we're filling a lot of those places up early because you know middle end of september there's a lot of ducks traveling and when we're able to what i call stop stop those early ducks or when we're starting to hold some ducks you know it's easier to stop more ducks as they coming down and migrate now, do y'all have any sort of uh, resident bird? Uh, uh, do you have any ducks that stay year round that you, that you that you get that early season? No, we we really don't. I mean, there's a few wood ducks, you know, that are raised around here, and you know, a few mallards here and there. But for the most part, with uh, with all the moist soil around, you know, it's kind of feast or famine. I mean, flood years there'll be a ton of water around, but other years in the summer, it'll most everything will dry up. Right. Now, um, you, you're you're getting ready to open the Grand. What is that going to be? Um, the Grand is our, our second lodge in Missouri. It's about 35 minutes or so, so our home lodge. Um, but it puts us in another zone, puts us in the middle. So it gives, like this year, an extra 
extra 12 days of hunting. Uh, there was some property there. There's a big, another big refuge. The next big refuge is what's called the, the Triangle. It sits right along the Missouri River. And really, it's, it's kind of become, become the you know, for for migrating mallards. I mean, as much as much as we where we are currently, but probably even more so because of the Missouri River. Uh, Missouri River never freezes freezes over solid. It'll get icy enough to where you can't get a boat up it. But basically, it just becomes a big refuge. Mm-hmm. And when it's going to open, not this season, but next season, twenty twenty, I guess. No, it'll it'll open fall of nineteen. Oh wow! So y'all yeah, are moving dirt got, in a hurry. We are. We've got quite a, quite a lot of equipment down there. How many ducks did y'all hold this winter? Um, you know, it it just depends. I mean, we hold sure we hold we hold some ducks, but but really, where we're at, I mean, the ducks are are really held by the by the refuge system. Uh, we're in close proximity to three different refuges, and I would say there'll be, you know, two hundred and fifty to four hundred thousand right in our right in our area. Uh, you know, when they peak. Ooh, that's a lot of ducks. That you know, is. I was born in Lexington, Missouri, and my grandpa used to duck hunt on the Missouri. He used to tell me about it. 85 years ago, right through there. That's a hell of a little area right through there. I don't think it's changed much done. in all them years. No, it really hasn't. Now, I want to get on to the hot topic that people are questioning all the time, and I know you hear about it all the time. What are your, What's your thoughts on all the hot cropping guys down in Louisiana talking about the ducks being stopped up north? Well, I mean, it, it is what it is. I mean, there's there's a lot of different, a lot of different factors. It, it's certainly not not all flooded corn. I mean, the flooded corn's been around for years and years and years. I mean, I think one of the biggest factors probably that I see when I, when I was a kid in northern Illinois, uh, all the big Canada geese went to southern Illinois. Uh, every Everybody in our town had snowmobiles, mm-hmm. and we used to have we used to have winters. <clears throat> Heck, where, where we're at right now in Missouri, Swan Lake was one of the self-proclaimed goose capitals of the world, just like Southern Illinois was, but Swan Lake wintered 95% of the eastern prairie population, the Canada geese, 60s and 70s. Um, it was was unreal. I mean, hundreds of thousands. And now we're lucky if we if we get 10,000 geese on that refuge um, in the coldest of winters, like late January this year, if we, if we get 10,000 dark geese, that's a big number. I mean, it just, it doesn't, doesn't happen like that anymore. I mean, if you go back to my hometown, you can go through it. And I bet you'd be hard pressed to find a snowmobile. Yep. Uh, but we started off with a with a colder than a colder than average October, uh, and, and a really cold early November, and then heck, when it got into December, it was sixty degrees. Right. Yeah, miserable and, winter. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I think ducks and, and geese they they have adapted some. I mean, they don't. There's a lot of ducks that don't ever get to us. I mean, it'll be 30 below zero in South Dakota, and they'll still have several on the Missouri River up there. <clears throat> I mean, sure, there's there's better habitat in Missouri, but it is what it is. I mean, it, there's better habitat in Missouri, and there's less habitat in Louisiana. Uh, it's certainly not anybody's fault <clears throat> for wanting to create better habitat. No, I'm... The state, of, the state of Missouri put an eighth of a cent sales tax on everything in the state. I think it was in the late 70s. 
that, that goes to the Department of Conservation. So certainly the habitat's gotten much better. Uh, but, you know, the for what it costs to flood corn, I think that habitat is is much smaller than, than what people think it is. I mean, you see pictures of a lot of ducks in flooded cornfields, but like for our operation, the the, the the moist soil outnumbers the acres of flooded corn by quite a bit. Now, what is moist soil for, for those that, that don't know? Well, moist soil is going to be like your, your WRP program, your wetland reserve program, just your marsh. Uh, it's going to grow up like in our area. We've got a, a really dynamic seed bed. So if we just take the water off of our wetlands at the right time of year, it's going to grow up in, in good natural foods, millet, smart wheat. And, you know, that's one of the things that I've learned through the years because just from habitat management, from making so many mistakes when I was younger, I wanted to disc up everything when it, come to, when it came to wetlands. I wanted to disc it all up. I wanted to plant millet. I wanted to plant buckwheat. You know, make it looking pretty. Well, you get a, a July or August flood, and you're you're left with a moonscape. You're left with nothing but mud. <laughs> but those those good natural foods. I mean, it's kind of survival of the fittest. They've been genetically altered for millions of years. Uh, I mean, that's what that's what ducks have been living on for a long time. And so, really, I I use I use more natural moist soil management now than than planting. And you think that that Missouri having more more habitat like that is is why ducks are staying more so than the flooded corn and and, and everything else? Sure, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and part of that part of that goes into into play with Canada geese. I mean, you know, we used to winter ninety five percent of the eastern prairie population of Canada geese, and everybody wants to, you know, when it first started happening, it was like a light switch, I and mean, they went from from the mecca to to nothing, and it's just a a few short years and people say, well, you know, they changed management practices on the refuge or they changed this or that. Well, for one, the, the biggest change was, you know, the, the weather and, and the available habitat. I mean, back then they didn't have the, they didn't have all the, the watersheds and lakes and everything in, in Iowa and in the city, you know, the, the fountains and the place, you know, the rivers and stuff up north. Um, where now, you know, these, these urban areas are, the metros are basically huge refuges for the geese. And, and kind of the same holds true on the duck side. I mean, there's a, a lot more habitat in the, the middle to upper Midwest right now than there used to be. In our county alone, I believe, has, don't quote me on this, but something like eighteen to 20,000 acres of WRP, well, which is wetlands. I'm a. We don't have corn where we are in West Texas. We're hunting geese over peanuts and and our ducks over peanuts also in Milo and some hay grazer and stuff. If we could flood corn and plant it here, by God, I would also. I'm telling you right now, I'd be right on that line because I think it does help some. But lack of winter has killed or has not killed has changed everything. The the big geese we used to winter a hundred thousand graders. In, in, in western Texas in our little area up here on the wheat they were they were on the wheat geese we don't have a big goose here hardly anymore and over the years they've just yeah. adapted but if you go to Wichita Kansas or Wichita Falls or Lawton or Oklahoma City there's big geese all over town down there used to not be and they don't Absolutely. leave yeah and they, and they just stay there year round, year and, round. and that's that's changed that but 
that I wanted to ask you about the water. A lot of people think, well, they're stopping all the ducks. The winter is what's no winter is what's changing the flight pattern. It's not food. More There's always anything. been food. Yeah, and farming. Absolutely. Pro- and, and, Go ahead. And really, it's not just the the winters as much as it is the lack of snow. I mean, like I said, when I was yeah. a kid, everybody had snowmobiles. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, people don't realize, you know, that they want to complain about the flooded corn, complain about the ice years, <clears throat> and all these are things. Excuse me. That don't get that don't get used in in southern climates because they don't work. I mean, you don't you don't necessarily need a a reason to have an ice eater in whatever Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi. Um, we've got I've got friends in Arkansas that 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 flood some corn and and it just doesn't it doesn't work down there because temperatures are so much warmer. Sure, it's going to work it's going to work a little bit, but they when they're using the corn as a food source. It's from a temperature standpoint, mm-hmm. and whether it's in a, a whether it's flooded impoundment or it's a dry cornfield, that's what they're eating, and then they're not going to go back to that moist soil so it warms up a little bit. Well, it doesn't matter if it's flooded or out, out in the middle of a, a dry cornfield. What's going to move those ducks is going to be whether or not it's covered up with snow. Yeah, and if you've never if you've never used an ice eater, you really I mean, yeah, it's easy to get on there and say, hey, you know, all these ice eaters are in, in flooded cornfields are short-stop at ducks, but and that just proves you've never used one because all an ice eater is going to do is give you a decoy hole that, uh, that has enough room to put some decoys in. It isn't going to hold, all right, you might be able to fit 1,000 ducks in it or 500 ducks or whatever, but you're not going to hold the migration. No. I mean, an, ice eater, an ice eater cannot do anything Anything more than what a hundred thousand pairs of little orange feet splashing all night could do. I mean, nothing can compete with that. Right. I mean, when those when those birds want to keep a hole open, whether it's in a cornfield, on a lake, uh, on a river, on a pond, whatever. I mean, they're going to do it. I mean, it's just that's the way it is. And if their food source isn't covered up, they're more apt to put a little effort forth to do so. Yeah, we've we've talked about that quite a bit on this podcast. You know, snow is is the main driving factor in in any migration because just like you said, they can keep they can keep water open if they want to. But if that corn, if that food, if you know, it doesn't have to be corn. Whatever that food is, if it gets covered up, the little fuckers are going to move. I mean, it's just they if they don't have food, they got to go. Absolutely. But and the other part to go along with that is, you know, it, it's got to be that way for a prolonged period of time. Right. If we we catch an eight inch snowstorm that that happens to roll in, well, in in three days it, it's gone. I mean, it's just not sticking on the ground. Hundred percent. I mean, it, it'll stick for a day or two, and and those birds are going to sit through that. I mean, it it is what it is. I mean, that's the reason ducks are sitting in South Dakota because yep. they might have a little snow, and then it warms up just enough to get rid of it, or where they get through to their food source, and they leave. Yeah. These these birds are, are pretty hardy, and, and what I think, and I could be way off base, I'm far from a biologist, but the ducks that we're getting early, uh, the ones that are really loading up in October and November are the the years when the the Dakotas put on a, a very good nesting effort. Mm-hmm. Those, those are the ducks that come out of North and South Dakota. I mean, they're starting to get a little pressure up there into September, first part of October, seasons are opening up. And, and those ducks aren't, aren't near as hardy. They're, they're traveling, traveling by the, the hours of light in the day, whatever it is. You know, those calendar ducks, the ones we get early, 
to me, I feel like are raised in the States. And then those those ducks that are really driven by fronts, in my opinion, are coming out of Canada. Yeah, the other ducks raised much further, much further north. Right. I, I yeah, I agree with that. But um, and and another thing that I find interesting is these guys that that bitch and complain about ice eaters, um, would most likely be the first ones to use it if they ever got the opportunity to. If they lived in a northern climate where they did need an ice eater. They'd be right along with everybody else because you know it. You can hunt out. You can at least make a hole for your decoys to go, like you said. Yeah, I mean, who? who I mean, what, who's who's grown up? You know, I'm forty, whatever, forty one years old, and I'd hate to guess. I don't know. I don't know how I have any shins left. I mean, <laughs> anybody that's grown up up here. I mean, when you grow up, you're you're breaking holes in the ice. You're yeah. sheet fit. You're pushing it under, and and it's great, and it works well, and that's fine. But who wouldn't want to just go walk out to your blind and be able to throw decoys out without doing all that? Yep, hundred percent. Well, they're also the same it's guys. A, it's something that's easy to attack because you're, they don't use. It. Well, and I think it also it, it is something to attack, and, and you can if you can put a face to something, it's easier to attack it rather than just saying we got shitty luck with winter right now, and we got shitty luck with snow sticking on the ground for over three or four days. Absolutely. I mean, where we're at. You know, at Swan Lake, we're going to hold, we're going to hold a lot of ducks. It's going to get cold, and we're going to hold a lot of ducks. But I got news for you: when it gets cold, cold, and when there's snow, we're not wintering ducks. We're we're not a wintering area by any means. They go down to the Missouri River or or points on south. I mean, you can't. I don't care what you do or or what laws you put in place. When there's no snow covering tens of thousands of acres of excellent farmland you know farm stubble along the missouri river which isn't frozen and you can't make the ducks go any further south i mean a lot of them will um and i get it you know we've got a lot of friends in arkansas and other parts of the country and you know arkansas for example had by and large one of their worst seasons ever and it all kind of it all kind of comes back to it it's easy to point fingers it's easy to do this um, but it's it's hard to sit down and look at facts because you may not agree with what's happening. It was a cold October, a cold November. All the ducks got coming out of Canada in big numbers, and there was an absolute ginormous Missouri River flood in September, October, that kept tens of thousands of acres of water out in uh, unharvested crop fields yeah. in Northwest Missouri, Iowa, Nebraska, South Dakota, yep. and then it got warm. I mean, there was there was tens of thousands of acres of habitat that has never been available for them before that they had free and clear this fall, mm-hmm. and then it got warm, so they never had to leave it. I mean, to be perfectly honest with you, I know our habitat's good, and when I went to Canada driving up I-29 and, and going along the river and seeing all this all these thousands upon thousands of acres of flooded fields, I really had doubts that, that our season was gonna be was gonna be very good because there was so much habitat. Yeah. And we held you know, a lot of that stuff kinda of started falling out later in the year, but for early in the season, you know, we didn't have we didn't have near what we should have. There was just a lot more habitat available. Now is it, is that frustrating? is that that's got, I gotta imagine that's gotta be so frustrating because you spend your summer months, you're working your fingers to the bone, you're working your ass off, 
and and like you said, early season it just there was just so much north of them that they didn't have to come to you. That's got to be just incredibly frustrating knowing that you got all these man hours and the ducks aren't there yet. Yeah, absolutely. I mean that's <clears throat> that's the thing of it. I mean we could be we could be in Louisiana or Mississippi doing the exact same thing we're doing here. Um, I doubt I doubt the corn would, would be a good management tool down there, but the rice is. Um, you know, man, intensively managing a pot of ground down there, and it's it's still going to be up to Mother Nature. I mean, right. I'm I'm glad I'm in Missouri. Let me put it that way. I'm a little further north, but hell, there'll there'll come a time when I'm going to want to be further north than here. I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, if you live long enough, things are going to change. I mean, back when when we had the Canada geese, everybody said, you know, this is it, and this is the way it's supposed to be. Well, they left. They don't come here anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, you're not going to get them back by by providing more habitat at Swan Lake National Wildlife Refuge. I mean, they're just—it's not going to happen. I mean, it was a—it was a combination of more habitat north and, and less winter. I mean, you can you can do what you want, but it—we're not going to get the Canada East back. Yeah, and and we we had the gentleman on from the the Flyway Federation a couple months ago, and I I started doing a lot of research into this. And one thing that Louisiana is failing to mention to everybody is how their rice they're not planting rice down there like they used to back in the 70s 80s and 90s well that's taking habitat away from the ducks that are coming there just for the rice so they're gonna they're gonna go somewhere else absolutely i mean what happened you know i'm sure jeff you guys are extremely knowledgeable on this what happened at, at katie Perry? exactly houston moved west <laughs> that that was one of their I big mean, things they lost their habitat i mean that's it that's right when when I was a kid growing up in Illinois, we had a we had a quota system. So we had the eastern prairie population of Canada East going to Swan Lake in Missouri. Our season would close two to three weeks early because we'd fill the quota uh-huh. because the grand majority of the quota numbers were given to southern Illinois. Well, as it got warmer, northern Illinois was holding all the geese. And we would still leave early or quit early because southern Illinois, despite knowing the number stayed in northern Illinois was still the supposed hot spot. And now, you know, it's, it's different. They don't have the quota system. But, but those areas in southern Illinois are just like Swan Lake right now. I mean, they rarely see Canada geese. What do, y'all, what do they hold at Swan now, just ducks or some snow geese? Yeah, there's quite a few ducks, a lot of snow geese. So when you were growing up, did you grow up primarily a duck hunter or did you goose hunt also? Well, I was pretty pretty fortunate right where i grew up i was right between the mississippi and illinois rivers and uh we had we hunted pasture ponds and old strip pits were kind of in a strip mine area very very good canada goose hunting and then my grandfather was a member of a couple duck clubs on the illinois river uh so i kind of got to do it all Mm -hmm. if if somebody had a gun to your head and you had to choose one are you taking the green heads because that's what i see on your instagram all the time man if I had a gun to my head, I would probably say greenhead sunshine. But that being said, I'm just extremely, extremely fortunate to live in Missouri because I love to do it all, and I don't like to have to choose. Yeah. Canada's awesome, but a lot of times, you know, you got to kind of decide: do you want to shoot dark geese or snows or ducks or this or that? Seasons are all over at the same time. Then you get points further south. You know, season, you know, Texas, for example, your seasons kind of coincide. Uh, Missouri, we've got our early teal season. And then 
during duck season, Canada geese will kind of run concurrent with it, but when our duck season closes in the first part of January, we get to concentrate on Canada's specs until the 6th of February, so basically we get another month just to concentrate on Canada's specs, and then after that, we get spring the spring conservation, spring conservation order to concentrate on snow, so I wouldn't, if I had to choose to be green heads, I'm just glad I don't. <laughs> do you hear that? Do you hear that uh, recording in your head from the, from the snow goose season? I mean, do you hear that when you close your eyes at night? Absolutely. God <laughs> Almighty, I, I I can't do it. I can't do it, Tony. The the snow like goose. I said when, earlier when I when I told you I usually try to keep my phone on my truck so I can can hear it. Yeah. I just I don't have very good hearing anymore. I don't know if it's from the gunshots, the snow goose caller, or whatever. But I can tell you, my kids will have hearing. When they start hunting, <laughs> are, are you at the age yet where you're about ready to give up the snow goose hunting? No, man, I love it. So I just does not for some reason. Well, I'm a West Texas boy, and we always shoot as darks anyways when we kill some snows. But I just do not see the desire to hunt snow geese once once Canada season's closed. And boy, everybody wants yep. to do it. I just I've never gotten the fever for to, to do that. I guess because it for looks me, miserable. Man, it, it looks miserable. It, it can be for sure, but on the flip side, I mean, I guess it's it's the competitive nature of it. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Snow geese are, are basically, in my opinion, they're the tarpon of the waterfowl world. Yep. I mean, yep. more days than not, they're going to kick your butt. But those days when everything lines up, sun and wind, and, and you're kicking their butt, man, it's beautiful. And it's kind of nice, you know. You're you're not you don't necessarily have to pick out pick out a green hand or you know, when it's Canada goose season, you know, you get one flock in and, and you might be done. You know, and when it's when it's time to go to work on them, it, it's nice not to have a limit, be able to have an extended tube. And now, for me, you know, you're you're kind of doing it in the name of conservation. I mean, the, the spring, to me, is about, it's about killing. I mean, the fall, ducks, Canada, washing up and all that, it's more, it's more the hunt. But I s- the spring, spring, I get mad at them. I saw a study uh, last week that said that the snow goose population, even with all this extent yeah. spring season, is not they're not putting a dent in it. It keeps going up. Yeah, not not even close. I mean, you know, some of these snows, I mean, they'll live to be, heck, 20, 20 plus years old. Yeah. And those adults see a lot of spreads, and, and they're, not, they're not by any means dumb. And, you know, you have, have really good years with years of good hatch because – most people are shooting juvenile or a higher percentage of juveniles. I mean, we're, we're never killing enough adults uh, to put a to put a dent in the population by any means. Are you noticing more speckle bellies in your neighborhood than there used to be? Oh man, it's it's crazy. Uh, when I and you know where I grew up in Illinois, we never had sex when I was a kid. Now, same thing back there. And I don't know if the population on sex is booming or if <clears throat> if specs are staying further north like the ducks are. I know Arkansas is kind of like the spec, you know, the speckle, speckle goose, speckle belly mecca, mm-hmm. and we're we're not a mecca by any means, but we've got fifteen times what we had ten years ago. We 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 do too, and we winter. We've always wintered a bunch of specks here, but we're we're, we're our spec numbers go up every single year, more and more of them all the time. You used to see a switch out here. We used to in early November. We always get those calendar birds, those calendar specks. They come here. They're here October fifteenth every year. But somewhere along the line, we would see a switch from specks 
mainly specs to mainly Canada's. And it just, there's just so many freaking specs here now that it, I don't think that the switch ever happens. I mean, we, we yeah. always have, and you, we would go through from Thanksgiving to January 7th, 8th, 9th, we wouldn't hardly see a spec and it would just be all Canada's. And now I don't know if it's because the Katy Prairie has dried up or what it is, but we have specs all year long. And yeah, there's, there's a lot of them, and we we don't we don't hold that many in the fall. Uh, they'll hit the ground maybe for a day or two, but most of what what we have spec wise fall, you go out to let dog out at three o'clock in the morning, and they're just pouring over you in the dark. Well, the ones we kill are, I guess, kind of coming back north in January, which Canada's when it mm-hmm. warms. You know, coming back north with snows and whatnot when it warms up a little bit. But yeah. we definitely have a lot more than we did 10 years ago. Are you killing little Canada's there or just big ones? Uh, we kill the ETP geese. They're kind of mid-range. I'd say they're they're not the, the little ones like, like they used to have. I'd say they're, you know, six, seven-pound geese. And if it gets really, really cold, um, if, if Iowa happens to get covered up with a blizzard with 12, 18 inches of snow, like, you know, end of January this year, then we'll, we'll kill those big golf course geese and the graders that come out of Minnesota and Iowa that, that aren't holed up up there. It takes a lot to get them down here. Now, going back to, to your, uh, the snow goose conservation season, what, what's the most that you've killed in one hunt? Uh, well, we had one day. Not not this spring, but this past spring would have been 2018. They killed 504 uh, in a permanent pit right behind our lodge. Holy shit! And probably probably 350 of them came in about a 50 minute stretch mid afternoon. Jesus Christ, that's amazing. Yeah, how, how many bands? Man, I don't know if they had any of that. Really, they kind of come and go. Uh-huh. Um, seems like depending on on where your birds or what colony is coming through at what time, you might go, you know, a week, ten days, two weeks without seeing a band, and then you might kill three in two days. Yeah. On the duck side, with with all the ducks that that we kill, we see very very few bands. Now, why why is that? They just don't come from the from where they've banded a whole I, bunch of them. I guess the ducks that come through here must not be where they're banding them at. Up in Saskatchewan, you know, it's not uncommon to see a, a duck band every other day. Uh, places they used to hunt in Oklahoma, we'd kill multiple bands in a three, four day trip. But around here, I mean, we'll we'll hunt all season, and we might we might see three or four bands total mm-hmm. for ducks. What about on your Canada geese? Do you see many Canada, bands on those? It just if it gets brutal. Uh, you know, we'll we'll see more. If they get a bunch of snow, you'll you'll kill some of them golf course geese from Iowa that that have bands. And Northwest Iowa, we'll get we'll get some of those bands. You get a few from from Minnesota and points further north on the on the you know the the midside piece, but not not a ton. But I'd say they're they're definitely more common than than duck bands are. Yeah. So, what were your thoughts on the Max Prairie Wing? Uh, Snow, Snow Goose, Goose Tournament. Uh, I mean, I, I, I guess it was mixed. Uh, I get it. I mean, I like the, like the thought of, you know, promoting hunting and, and getting people involved and, and all that, but I don't know. It was kind of, 
I wasn't a huge fan of it. Uh, there was a lot of people in a lot of different areas uh, trying to tie up fields and, and jumping jumping fields, and obviously you couldn't do that for the contest. But it brought a lot of brought a lot of people in, which I suppose it was it was supposed to. But you know, we're we're not real close to that guards. We weren't really affected. But I've got friends that guide down there, and you know, all their clients are going into going into those stores and spending money and and it kind of it hurt them because a lot of their fields were were getting taken and, and jumped and people scaring geese off the side of the road so they could get them somewhere they could hunt them i don't know it was do you think it that, had the right intention it definitely had the right intention do you think it will be a second one i'm sorry do you think there'll be a second one man i have no idea i don't even know how many teams they had in it 23 maybe i don't know yeah it, it's i i'm i'm right there with you though it, it was i think their intentions were good i don't i don't know that they thought everything through i think they tried to yeah. with the rules and everything you know no jump shooting no ditch shooting no you, snow goose hunting's already kind of a bloodthirsty sport um and then you tack on a prize to it and i think think a lot of guy you know i heard a lot a lot of reports of like fist fights for fields and i don't know i hope yeah, that, I, mean, I hope I was, there's not a second one though i mean it was it was cool uh, i mean it was definitely a cool deal uh for, for those that were involved i mean all the sponsors they had the mm-hmm. prizes and all sure. that i mean those are awesome yeah awesome prize packages it's just it i don't necessarily know i don't know it, it's none of my business but well, i hey, think it, it, you know to some extent, it's all in, in how how things are portrayed. And kind of getting away from that subject, it's kind of all of our responsibility as hunters to portray our heritage and our hunting lifestyle in a positive light. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, the old deer hunting argument. Guys strapping them on the hood of a truck or leaving their tailgate down or, mm-hmm. you know, that whole redneck craze that kind of came through with Foxworthy 10 or 15 years ago. I mean, there's a there's a, a ton of people that would a lot more people that would like to see our sport shut down than there are hunters that that to keep it together. And I mean, if we if we can't stand together as hunters, we're we don't have a chance, in my opinion. I mean, I think it's it's pathetic. I mean, you blow this call and I blow that call, so we should we shouldn't talk to each other. It's competition. <laughs> you know, you're you're killing more than me, so I'm going to be mad at you. I mean, that's yeah, that's all pretty ridiculous to me i mean it's all of our duties to to push this on to the next generation in a positive light make sure it's there i I want my daughters and my grandkids to to grow up hunting and i just do i've i've been in the hunting business now be 30 years in a couple years and it's been cutthroat from the day i got in it and i haven't ever really done much else in my life i've been in the hunting business and i since i was in college but i don't know of another industry fishing guides might be the same way as cutthroat as hunting business is and it's really a shame because the 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 base of where we get our clientele is getting smaller and smaller and we would all do better to work together than against each other but absolutely 100 percent. but and i get it i mean you know folks that that don't that don't like guides and and leasing and all that um i grew up in illinois there there wasn't good public hunting i mean leasing clubs and all that it's been a thing for a lot longer than I've been born, but, you know, guides and outfitters are, you know, typically taking clients that wouldn't necessarily normal, normally have, 
have bought a Dutch cat, or right. you know, they're bringing a different a different cat bringing into the fold that's spending money in our in our industry. The the hunt industry, at least the waterfowl hunt industry, I mean, it's it's very very small. I don't think people realize how small it is. Yep. No, I don't think they do. And you know, another thing that that waterfowl outfitters are doing that that they don't get credit for is they're they're taking guys that might not have Texas where we're at there's really no there's no public land hunting where we're at so we're taking guys that otherwise would not get to be on a successful hunt and we're putting them on you know we're not going to shoot a limit every day but we're they're seeing birds they're seeing birds decoy they're getting to pull the trigger a little bit so we're taking guys that normally would not get to experience something like that and now you know now that we're 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 taking them along for the ride now albeit you know there's there's some money exchange but these people are at least getting to experience it when otherwise they wouldn't sure there's some money exchange but you've got you've got a heck of a lot of expense as well but exactly you know the the pulling of the trigger is such a small part of waterfowl hunting i mean the things we get to see as waterfowlers on a daily basis whether it's a a sunrise a wet dog a cup of coffee i mean that's that's why i go it's not necessarily to pull the trigger yeah and you've got the whole the whole habitat argument and and all that and that's great but you know 70 80 years ago there was a lot more habitat than than waterfowl has right now i mean these rivers have been straightened out they don't flood as often as they used to Mm -hmm. i mean without people you know providing habitat whether it is in the name of a guiding service or a private duck hunting club whether it's in the name of strictly two harvest ducks or it's in the name of conservation, it is definitely benefiting the birds that we hunt. I mean, hunters are truly the best conservation. Absolutely. How many, um, do, do, do your local chamber of commerce and the towns around you, do they appreciate the people that you bring into your community? Because a lot of places, there's the people that you do business with appreciate it, but a lot of the other people are jealous and stuff. Do you do, do you think they notice and appreciate how many people from way off come to y'all's area? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think it's a, I think as a general, you know, general rule, everybody in our area is, is very supportive uh, just because, you know, yeah, the, the, the people that we're having coming in, you know, they're going to the gas stations, they're going to the local places and, and getting licenses, shopping and that sort of thing. But, but also, I mean, just, I mean, other hunters to some, ex- to some extent, I mean, I grew up in Illinois. We didn't have the good refuges. We didn't have the habitat. And, I promise you, you stand zero chance of killing a duck if it's not in the area. Mm-hmm. Yep. And and where we're at, I mean, I I think we're doing positive things to to help the numbers of ducks in our areas. Which there's a lot of other people that that are killing ducks that maybe maybe eating on one of our places or resting on one of our places, whatever it may be. Um, I think everybody benefits to some extent. Well, I think that's true, and. I just, I'm sure you're like us. Most of your business is not coming from right there within 30 miles of your lodge. Most of your stuff, people come from all over the country and the world to come to you. Yep, absolutely. What What are your thoughts on the on the on this upcoming hatch? We've got flood. We've got <clears throat> snow going on up north right now. What, what What's your prediction? I think the I think the the habitat conditions are in place. Pull off a a bumper hatch in the Dakotas. I mean, it's going to have to straighten out from a from a warm, cold standpoint. We don't need any more blizzards or any of that stuff. Uh, but from a straight 
water standpoint, I mean, that's always going to be the limiting factor in duck production is, is water. And there's an, a, definitely an abundance of it in the Dakotas. I think southern Canada, um, I don't, I can't speak the whole, the whole area, but I know like southern Saskatchewan is very dry. Mm-hmm. Uh, so hopefully, hopefully there's going to be a lot more ducks stopping and breeding in the Dakotas um, than going up north. And they're going to have to push further north, at least in the southern southern parts of Saskatchewan. Yeah, but I think you know everything's in place to have a have a really good hatch. And last year there there really wasn't all that great of a hatch, and you know some of that's reflected in in overall the the tougher tougher seasons across the board for people. Was was this over overall? Was this a tough year for you guys? Because it was uh, it was snows, a tough year. It was a tough year here. Yeah, snows were terrible. Uh-huh. Uh, we were we were actually we had a very very good duck season, and we were we were fortunate. But like I said, we were at the we were at the right part of the country where it got cold to get those birds moving, and then it warmed up, and it was sixty degrees December. Yeah. Yeah, goose season here was tough. Um, ducks, ducks actually did save our asses. Luckily, we get we get a lot of pintails here. Uh, Texas, I don't know if you know it or not. We had we had quite a bit of rain last September and October. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the ducks saved our ass. Goose hunting was tough though. I, I I think it had a lot to do with the bad hatch. We were hunting a lot of adult birds, and there were days where we'd be on the X from the night before and then we'd go out there and it would just be a kick in the nuts for whatever reason. I think it's just adult yeah. birds. So I hope yeah, you're right. I, I 100% agree. 100% agree. Okay, I got a question for you, Tony. What's the weirdest thing y'all shot up there? Uh, the weirdest thing we've shot. We've killed, uh, I think, two or three scoters. <laughs> They're yeah, lost. come off come off the ocean and i don't know much about them but i I guess there's there's getting to be decent numbers of them on the great lakes uh so it could have been something that was you know pushed pushed off course from one of the great lakes or something like that but probably the coolest one was was that big hurricane sandy had that it's been several years ago now that huge northeast wind out there and you know on the east coast and like a day after that that wind hit the east coast one of our guests killed a scoter Mm-hmm. In one of our marshes, we we hung her on the wall and named her Sandy. <laughs> <laughs> y- y'all kill any black ducks ever? You know, we kill a few. Um, <clears throat> kind of strange, right? Growing up on the Illinois River, black ducks were were very common. <laughs> black ducks were were really common. Uh, and then once I got west of Mississippi, down in Missouri, um, I went thirteen years in Missouri without ever seeing a black duck killed. And then one day we had, well, one of the top three hunts of my life. And we had so many ducks coming in on us, and it was kind of a timber, timber-type timber situation. We were look, looking at them. We had our, had our mallards real quick, and we just sat there taking photos and, and watching the show. And over the course of the next hour and a half, uh, the five of us each killed a black duck. Wow. Hadn't seen one killed in 13 years, and we killed five that day. Wow. I'd say now, that was 10 or 12 years ago, now we probably see, I don't know, five to ten maybe a year is all. Now, you went and you, you went to Alaska for a king eider. 
Is yeah. that, is that something that you will ever do? I mean, is that just a straight bucket list item? Because it looked it looked miserable. For me, it was definitely a, a bucket list item. I don't know. But will you ever do it again? Would, is what I'm getting at. Well, I don't know if I would, just because um, <clears throat> it was absolutely incredible experience. I mean, just getting there and and the the conditions and and the cold and the wind and all that, and being able to do it, I mean, it makes you feel alive. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, it's I definitely enjoy the calling aspect of it. I mean, I guess that's probably why I haven't been to Argentina. I mean, I'm sure I will maybe at some point. Uh, I've heard a lot of great things about Argentina, but I'd rather go kill kill four greenheads somewhere that I can call in. You know, they're going to break their neck when they hear, hear somebody call at them than, mm-hmm. than go kill a hundred hundred things that are just flying by yeah and that's kind of that's kind of how the king is just they're just flying by right you just kind of get in their flight pattern and yeah yeah you got some hope you don't get washed out. off a rock <clears throat> yeah i mean it's definitely something to do once it, it is worth seeing uh, just the, the conditions and seeing how i mean that's a, a very very unforgiving place yeah and growing up growing up in the midwest uh see a little rough water on the mississippi river and you know, rainy lakes and some of the lakes we fish and whatnot, but we were up there and I think the wind blew like 87 mile an hour one day and that ocean, I've never seen anything like it in my life. Son of it, a bitch. It was flat out scary. <laughs> Granted, we weren't out of the water, but. Did you go to Dutch Harbor? Um, we were actually further out than that. We were on St. Paul Island, which, which I, I think they said it was closer to Russia than Alaska, but yeah. they have a remote crab offloading site or a crab plant right there. It was like 100 yards from where we were staying. And some of the crab boats on that, that deadliest catch, that's where they come in and, and unload their crabs. One night they went over and got like, heck, I don't remember, like 80 pounds of them. They cooked them up and it was unbelievable. Wow. How long was that trip? From the time you left your home to the time you got back, how long does that trip take? I think it was. I think we were up there. Or I think I think I was probably gone maybe ten days, counting counting travel. So yeah. you know, we get up there, and then you got to take a little a little puddle jumper on out there from from Anchorage. You've got a pretty good pretty good piece yet, and uh, then you come back into Anchorage and. You know, we were up there. I think we were out there on the island maybe maybe a week or six days, and two or two or three of the days we couldn't couldn't get out because of the weather. Mm-hmm. Boy, I bet that was boring yeah. sitting around there. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of stories. <laughs> then we, finally, we finally get back to the mainland and to Anchorage, and we've got like a midnight flight to to Denver. Yeah, and we got there. I don't know, eight or nine o'clock. We all went to the restaurant. We're like, oh, oh my God, you know, just telling stories from the trip. And we get on a plane and wake up and wake up, fall asleep, wake up. And the lady's like, uh, you can go ahead and throw your train now. We're landing. I'm like, holy cow. That's like eight hours. <laughs> on the plane? I can't believe that. Jeez. Yeah, so that's eight hours. I'm like, this is incredible. We're in Denver already. Yeah. And we land. We land. And there, you know, other people are still sleeping and whatnot. And the plane stops in the middle of the runway. And I'm like, lift it doesn't really make sense i bet we had mechanical trouble or something i turned my phone on the gps said we're in vancouver what? we're just sitting in the middle 
yeah, sitting in the middle of the runway. So I'm like, all right, you know, no big deal. Had had some mechanical trouble, whatever. But after like a half hour of sitting there, word gets out. There's some crazy dude on a plane with a bomb that's going to blow the plane up. Oh no shit! <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. We're on the we were on the the runway for like an hour. Oh just shit! Sitting there, and he was and on your, he like, was on your plane. Yeah, everybody's like, oh boy, this, yeah, this is pretty interesting. Then here come the cherries and blueberries and the SWAT uh-huh. storms the plane, sticks your you know guns in your face, don't move, freeze. <laughs> takes everybody off one by one and you know nobody's got passports uh-huh. nobody's planning on stopping in canada so we all had to be separated from the rest of the airport and herded into this room and missed the flights obviously missed all of our flights we were there for heck, out of 10 or 12 hours so there's just one more good story to top the trip off i guess the guy was was crazy. There, there was no plane, but so was you trying no to bomb? Did, I'm sorry. Could you tell which guy it was? But <laughs> did you racial profile? Actually, yeah, we knew we knew exactly which guy it was. <laughs> He's not hard to find. He, huh? was, he walked past us in the airport in January in Anchorage and had like a neon construction shirt on and shorts. We're like, man, look at this crazy old guy, like seventy years old, maybe a hundred and twenty pounds soaking wet, and he sat right right next to one of our buddies. Uh, that was with us, uh-huh. and our buddy texted us, and he, was, he works with Under Armour, Jed Larkin, and he's like, hey, there's some crazy guy sitting next to me. Come, come sit up there. I'm like, yeah, there's room. Come on up. Well, it ended up, he's the guy with the bomb. Oh, <laughs> so, so was it on the plane that he said he had a bomb, or how did this, how, yeah. did, how did it get yeah, out? Yeah, he told, he, he re- requested a bunch of stuff from the stewardess, and then handed her a note, I've got a bomb, you better mm-hmm. comply, or whatever. Yeah. There's one more good story for the trip. Jesus Christ. Dude. And you know, it's funny that Vancouver airport, I was there one time and nothing's in English hardly. There's Chinese or really? Japanese everywhere. I was so damn confused. Because that's the big, yeah. uh, that's the way for everybody from the Orient comes in just about anymore. Into Vancouver? Yep. So how long yeah. on that trip, how much of it were you just soaking wet and cold? Uh, pretty much. Probably the whole Pretty time. Pretty much all of it while <laughs> oh, you're out in the boat. No. Oh. But it, it, it's just a different deal. I mean, for yeah. me, I'm not much I'm not much of a sleeper, so I don't make it very long at night. You know, 8, 30, 9 o'clock, about as late as I can stay up. But I usually wake up between 2 and 4 every day. That's when I can get my emails done. You know, the kids are sleeping. It's quiet. I can get emails, bills, and all that stuff taken care of. When the sun comes up, it's time to go to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but up there... I woke up the first morning and started a pot of coffee, and heck, I had a pot of coffee drink. Nobody, nobody was up yet. Like, what's going on? Well, you don't realize there's 20 hours of darkness. Oh yeah. <clears throat> so I mean, we were, when we went out hunting, I mean, it was it was pretty short. I mean, it was cold, but you're not out there all that long. I mean, it only stays light like four hours or something like that. Yeah. And how how That's long a, how long's the boat ride from your camp to where to the hunting grounds? Well, it was anywhere from a couple miles to putting a, you know, you basically put a 12-foot 12 12-foot 12 inflatable raft on the on the trailer and take it across the island, which from what I remember is like maybe maybe seven miles across, and you're you're just basically launching it like like military. I mean, you're pushing it in off the off the beach and going over the the breakers, and then you're getting out into the swells. Mm-hmm. It's kind of cool. We didn't. We didn't get it on on film because the camera's fried. But the very last morning, I had one 
one king eider left to shoot, and uh, it was pretty rough. And uh, the captain, Russ, Russ, he's like, "Oh, we we can try it. We can make it." <clears throat> we go to push. We go to push off the beach, and when he says go, I mean, you better go. Mm-hmm. And you're just you're pushing. You're out there, and it gets to like waist deep or something. And he says go, and you basically jump in the boat. <laughs> and then he jumps in behind you, and he drops the motor, starts it hammers it to get you over the breakers and out into the swell and anyway we we got out there he said go and we jumped in the motor didn't quit we about flipped the boat so we kept going did it again we got out there killed a lot duck it's perfect came right in over us one of us decoys and we go to we go to go back in and, and you kind of ride the waves like a surfer just ride it all the way up on the beach mm-hmm. we're sitting maybe 150 yards out or something like that and we had a bunch of water in this little raft when the waves come over the front trying to get off the beach and i think one of the tubes was going a little flat or whatever long story short he's like all right hang on this could be a little rough <laughs> like, okay so you're on your knees and you're kind of hanging on to the you know the sides of this raft and we're probably i don't know 75 100 yards offshore and the wave were riding starts pulling away from us. You got a nine nine motor on your on your raft. And we got so much water and stuff in the in the raft that we don't have enough power oh, with no. the motor to keep up with the weight. Oh. And we're like, oh no. <laughs> the wave's pulling away from us about that time I look up and we're going up the next wave and the motor is over my head and oh, the rest man. is behind me and I slid down and hit the cameraman. Russ slid down and hit me. The motor <laughs> basically folded the boat in half, the wave went over, and we just kind of like fell up on the beach. I'm glad it was the last morning. Jesus. (laughs) I got a friend of mine that went there, and they did the same hunt, and he told me that he never, ever felt so invaluable in his life. He said, you're like a speck of dust. Vulnerable. Vulnerable, I guess is the word, yeah. You're you're helpless. Yeah, that's what he said. He said, when you sit out there on that rock, and you're waiting to sit there, and that sea's going and blowing, he said, "You don't realize just how unimportant you are in the aspect yeah. of the world, it, it, and how powerful that water is." Yep, that's what he Good said. Lord, yeah. That was one of the first things I asked Russ. I was like, "Where's life jackets?" He's like, uh, "We don't, we don't use them. All that's going to make it make it as easier to find your body if you fall into dead. But don't worry, we've never lost anybody." I'm like, oh, okay. How? What's the? What's the? Uh, not life expectancy, but how long do guides out there last? I mean, that, that seems like know. a pretty unforgiving to your body. I know how I feel at Russ, the end of hunting season, and I couldn't imagine having to contend with the ocean. Yeah, Russ is pretty tough, dude. Charlie and all those guys are pretty tough. You know, the other thing you don't realize is you're not just a guy. I mean, you're, you're a cook. You're a, a boat mechanic. I mean, not like you have motor trouble. You take it up to the, right. to the you know, the station on the corner. They're nothing. Yeah. And what, what is there is what they have brought in there. What was, crazy. What, what, was the, what was the food like there? Did you bring a bunch of stuff in, or did they have stuff there? Uh, no, they, they had stuff there. Uh, I mean, you know, you're not you're not going there for the food. That being said, the night we had the crab was probably the best crab I've ever had in my life. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not like going to, you know, a fancy, fancy duck lodge or something like that. It's, it's a rough rough trip all the way around. It's it's awesome. It's, it's worth doing. I'm a land loving guy. I don't know if uh, I don't know if that's for me or not. 
I'm probably there's nothing on that island over knee high because of the wind. There's no place to wash green that comes through trees. <laughs> yeah. So before we let you go, um, you're probably you're you're the biggest waterfowl hunter. You're the biggest name out there right now. What uh, I gotta imagine that the antis come at you pretty hard. Do you have any good uh, anti hunter stories coming at you? <clears throat> no. We get a few every now and then, but to be, be honest with you, I don't pay any attention to it. Um, I think that that the way the way we go about it, you know, we we always kind of try to portray what we do in, a, in our heritage in a very positive light. And, and I'm not going to be the guy that gets in there on on a on a social media site or a forum or something and starts arguing like a bunch of kids. I mean, that's that's not me. Yeah, um, we we really haven't had haven't had a whole lot of that except you know until recently. And that's not fantasy. That's from, from other you know fellow hunters. So would you say that fellow hunters probably come at you harder than the anti guys do? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And it is what it is. I mean, I'm whatever. It's easy to it's easy to to put a face with the cause or sure. you know blame blame an ice eater or whatever, but. There's a heck of a lot more to it than flooded corn. That's a very, very small, small piece of the, the greater puzzle. Hey, if you wouldn't be successful, they wouldn't bitch about you. <laughs> well, that's right. I mean, if Louisiana was getting, or not just Louisiana, but wherever, was getting their fair share of ducks, which they're still killing more than everybody, I don't know what what makes their fair share more or less than than somebody north of fair share. I mean, yeah. I think it's the ones with the green. Yeah, we want our fair share of Canada geese. Well, they're all in Minnesota and Iowa. That's not a darn thing we do about it. Yeah. Well, and if if you look, uh, if you look at the research, the numbers show, you know, that they're still getting more than they they still get more ducks than Arkansas, Missouri. This is Louisiana speaking. So I mean, they're still getting a shitload of ducks down there. Absolutely, but they. But like you you said earlier. there was so much water, you know, scattered around this year that that scattered a lot of birds out. So, absolutely. Yeah. And what I've always been surprised about is, I mean, you know, we're all right. We're, there's some habitat in our area. I mean, we're, without question, there's some good habitat in our area. But for people that have never been here, they would probably be shocked to see how small it is on a grand on a grand scheme. I mean. It blows my mind when I go to Arkansas snowview time at the amount of habitat and water. I mean, every field you drive past is flooded. Yeah. I mean, what makes what makes that field any different than the one across the road? Uh, you know, ducks, it seems to me like they've got zillions and zillions of options in those areas, you know, south of us. Uh, and where we're at, there, I mean, there's just not near as many options. No, so it's going to con- it's going to concentrate them. I mean, two hundred thousand that on on our refuge is, is going to look like a big number. Where you take two hundred thousand ducks and you scatter that across the habitat down south, it's not going to amount to much. Right now, w- when you get weather rolling in and you get you're going to get that snowstorm, do you have sp- do you have spots that you know? Because you mentioned earlier that they'll go from uh, moist soil to like a flooded cornfield or something, do you have spots that you'll change knowing that weather's coming in and there might not be many birds in a corn spot of yours, but you know it's going to get cold, so you'll go there anyway? 
Yeah, um, and probably more importantly, you know, there, there's a lot of uh, not tricks or anything like that, but things that we do different the most. I mean, you know, I mean, when, it, when that weather turns, they're going to be going to that corn like like no other. Uh, I mean, because they need that higher carbohydrate, whether it's corn, whether it's rice, whatever. That's they're going to be eating. The bugs aren't going to be cutting it anymore. Yeah. And when we see a big, a big system coming like that. People would be surprised, but we typically, you know, you see a big flight coming or the weather's set up to get a big migration of ducks. We stay out of all of our areas that have food. We go to we go to nothing but, but timber holes, traffic spots, uh, some of our, our holes that we don't hardly hunt. Uh, just because on, on those days, I mean, you can more or less kill them anywhere. Mm-hmm. And, and we don't want to be out there in those in those food sources when new ducks are showing up because if, if we can get them there, if there's a, you know, say there's 10,000 ducks already there and they're stopping a whole bunch of birds that are migrate and all those ducks are sitting in with them. Once, once they're there and they find the area, you know, they're not going to leave. But if you're in there banging them up, you're not giving them a chance to be there. You know, they're, they're going to go on somewhere else or they're going to go to the refuge itself. Yeah. Um, and there's, there's a lot of, a lot of things we do feel different. Kind of like when it's cold, you know. When, when it's really, really cold, you know, it's down in the teens. We kind of have a what we call a twenty degree rule. When it's when it's a low of twenty degrees or below, the ducks are in our area typically going to wait until the warmer part of the day to move. Mm-hmm. They're not going to move at daylight. Mm-hmm. So if you've got if you've got twenty thousand ducks out there keeping a hole open on their own, if you go in there five o'clock in the morning and blow them out of there and it's 13 degrees it's going to be frozen before they have a chance to come back right yeah so we'll go in a lot of times at that point we'll wait for them to get up warmest part of the day go in there at noon or one get them out of there shoot them quick and then be out of there you know make sure they have the last hour of the day to get back in there and, and keep their water open i mean ice eaters aren't going to do it i mean ice eaters aren't going to keep enough that enough water open so so a whole bunch, yeah. so when you kick them off at the at the at the warmest part of the day, do they go to the refuge and then come back to you, or do they just kind of, yep. or do they kind of just flutter and filter, you know, nope, buzz around? They'll, basically, they'll go they'll go over to the refuge where there's a heck of a lot more birds staying, and then they'll just, you know, it might be it might be two minutes, it might be an hour, might be a half hour, might be two hours. But eventually, they'll start trickling them back. Right. And you, you know, you shoot the shoot first ones that come back, you know, the first few bunches, and pick it up and, and get out of there. Yeah, um, pressure pressure management is a, a big thing, and you know, we see it. We we catch a lot of flack because we've got places to hunt. We manage pressure well. It doesn't matter if your habitat's in Missouri or Arkansas or Mississippi or Louisiana. I mean, pressure management is something you should be taking in mind. That was something that we we just talked about that last week. Uh, that that a lot of guys miss the boat on because we talked about it w- when guides go from just being a professional guide to now running an outfit is a lot of times it takes a couple years to get that pressure management down because as, as a guide you're very one-minded you're worried about your yep. group and you're worried about the best thing that you can do for your guys you're not worried about the collective and yep. you know a lot of guides they they miss the boat on pressure management um do 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 you think do, do your clients ever 
we, we drew the comparison of, you know, we might stop four or five birds short so that we can get out of there in time so that, so that, uh, you know, you keep the field fresh. Do, do your clients ever get upset if you do have to call? Cause you said you leave the last hour. Do your clients ever get upset if you have to pull the plug early before their limits no, completely most, done? No, most, most of the time they, they don't at all. Uh, you know, and a lot of times we're, we're shooting four mallards. I mean, if we, we'll shoot other ducks when they're, when they're around or if they come in. Um, but you know, if we've got four of us sitting there and, and we've got two teal, I think we lost you. you. Cut out a little bit. Yep. And, and we're, we're pretty lucky. I mean, we've Most of our guests through the years, and now Jeff, you've seen it with, with, with what you do. I mean, they—they're not just your guests. I mean, they're your good friends. Yes, sir. Yeah, that's they, right. They—they they come back and see you every year, and they have just as much fun going going somewhere up to one of the farms and watching them lift. We uh, this last year we we had a group, and we shot. We were we ended up being five birds short. There were ten guys. We and each had we we had fifty four birds and we were we were five or six short, so we had fifty five, and they they just were nasty that we weren't going to stay there for another couple flocks to get those last couple of birds. Yeah, straight up nasty. And you know you try to tell them like, listen, and we you know, you know we've never had it come up, but I mean at the in the end of the day, I mean it's up to the to the guests, but it's just it's never been never been an issue. Yeah, uh, like like you said though, it, most of the time it's not an issue, but it's just it's good. It you got to keep that pressure low. How long when that when the weather's cold? How long will you guys stay out of the food sources so that they can get comfortable in them? I think we're losing. you there. Tony, we're we're losing you. We're losing you, Tony. Can you hear us? Can you hear me? Yeah, we yeah, got you. We've been losing you. Yeah, I tell you, it says I've got good service, but yeah. So yeah, when it when it's cold, I mean, we're that's when when we're really putting pressure on them. Our pressure management, you know, is when it's warm mm-hmm. and they're they're not moving as good. When it's cold, they're moving and they they really need it. Uh, I mean, we don't refuge anything. We're hunting hunting the heck out. Yeah, well, you you just mentioned that on a big migration day, you'll stay out of the food sources to let them yep. to let just, them get in. Just there. on that day, just I mean, on just that on day, just on a flight day, just on yep. a flight day. After that, it's fair game. Yep, I just get them there, let them, and, and that isn't saying short stop from going to Louisiana, but short stop from going to the next refuge in Missouri, or right. you know, just have ducks hit your area rather than go somewhere else. And I think that's what everybody tries to do, whether you've got a lease or, or own private. Yeah, that that's a question we get a lot is, hey, I've got this spot. How long should I wait before I hunt it? And we're, you know, shit, if you got ducks, especially in our area, because they're kind of flighty little creatures, it doesn't take much and they're moving on to the next area. You better hunt them while you yeah. got them because you're going to look up and they're going to be gone. Absolutely. It's much. Some of it's out of our control, I mean, especially with those, those early ducks. I mean, it could be the moon. It could be, it could be anything. I mean, we see... You know, we'll see them push into a into a south wind. They'll migrate on into a south wind, or you know, just the strangest things. And the moon plays a plays a huge role. Yeah. Well, 
Tony, I really uh, – we're going to let you go here. We've, we've taken up enough of your time. This could have gone on forever, but I'm going to cut you off here, and uh, I really appreciate you coming on with us. It's been a, it's been a treat. Well, man, I appreciate you having me. I, I love talking ducks and habitat and all that sort of stuff. I'm happy to join you anytime. Really, that's what we should all be doing. Yeah, no, that's right. Well, we'd sure like to get you on this fall again before you get busy, and we do appreciate you being on here, and God bless you, and take care of that family. Hope y'all have a great summer. Hey. Yes, sir. We'll get you on again soon, man. I really, like I said, I really appreciate it and had a had a good time talking to you. Interesting guy. Yeah, he is. I say this for him: the man has made an empire of waterfowl hunting. Sure, he's done more than anybody I know of. Um, just he's done a hell of a job, hell of a thing got going on up there. Um, he's built, like you said, he's built a. Built an empire, and uh, jealousy runs deep in the hunting business. It does, and like I said, you know, I think what it is is a lot of guys instead of just saying, you know, winters have not been in our favor. It doesn't stay snowy up north. Um, instead of saying that, it's easier to say because they can't fix that. No, they can go after this guy and others like him. Yeah, I think the whole and this program. And maybe, you know, if they can get this change, then the ducks are going to come back. Somebody told me that the... In their minds. From Omaha to the, I guess the Missouri River runs. Just go to the Omaha, Dad, down into Kansas City, St. Joe, that that whole that whole area there, they said it's full of hunt clubs with yeah. flooded corn, the whole thing. However far it is from Omaha to Kansas City, I don't know, as a crow flies. So 100, 150 miles of just solid, they said it's duck clubs. After duck clubs and flooded corn. So, it's just not him. He's just catching the brunt because he's the most. Most of those places are a bunch of guys. They don't want nobody to know what they're doing anyways. You know, six rich guys have a place and that's it. Yep. Anyway, this is good. It was a very good podcast. He's an interesting guy. I appreciate him being on here. I know he's busy. Yeah. Um, But just a good dude. Just seemed like a really good dude. Go to Dive Bomb Industries. You got that promo code. I don't know how long it's going to last, people. Last year it lasted until all lasted I, through the summer. Yep. So I, but I don't know if it's going but that far this time. I don't know. They have not told us how long it's going to last. Go buy you some pintail decoys. Could be here until August or September. It could disappear in June. I don't know. All so, I'm going to tell you is they run out of decoys every fall. Yeah. They sell out. They sell out. So if you're wanting something, you better not wait because uh, I'd hate to I'd hate to know that. Uh, you just didn't pull the trigger. So the promo code is TRUMP2020. Go there now. Thank you again to Tony Vandemore. He's a very busy guy this time of year, planting corn and all other good stuff. So uh, I enjoyed talking to him. Yep, really nice guy. God bless y'all. Y'all be safe driving.